Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host on this channel. Today we'll be speaking with Nara Milanish, professor of history at Barnard College, and we'll be talking to her about her new book, Paternity, The Elusive Quest for the Father, published by Harvard University Press. Nara, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Rachel. So to begin, could you tell us a little bit about your scholarly trajectory and how you came to this project? Sure. So this book is a book about paternity, as the title would suggest. Um, And it takes a global view of thinking about the history of paternity and ideas about the father in the 20th century. So it um, includes, and I did research on, and in Latin America, um, but its scope is broader. Um, So I deal in the book um, also with Um, certain countries in Europe, as well as the United States. Um, And so thinking about my trajectory, I, for my my first book was about um, the history of family in 19th century Chile. Um, And it inspired a lot of questions um, about um, ideas about family and practices of family, um, and how they might have changed um, in the 20th century. So that book ended in the 1930s, basically. Um, And so after I got finished with that book, I thought about writing about um, family in the 20th century. Um, And so I started to do that um, in a Latin America-focused project, um, but quickly got sidetracked, I would say, by um, what became ultimately this book. So in thinking about my trajectory, I moved from the 19th century into the 20th and from Chile to sort of a more global and a kind of national-focused history to a more transnational um, history. Um, so the two, my two monographs um, are really dealing with very similar questions and issues about the construction of family, about the nature of family law, about ideas specifically about paternity, um, and about how those ideas about paternity relate to broader social structures. Um, but the scope um, is different, um, as is the kind of time frame. Um, so in your early chapters, you talk about this notion of paternal uncertainty, Um, And you kind of describe the move toward what you call um, modern paternity. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you mean by those two phrases? Sure. So there's a kind of fetishization in, um, I would say, law and and social theory and social practice of um, paternal uncertainty historically. Um, This... uh, and by paternal uncertainty, I refer to the idea that the father is always uncertain, right? The mother it can always be discerned um, because of pregnancy and birth. So you, there was physical proof of, of the mother of maternity. Um, but paternity is always uncertain. Paternity is based on presumption. Um, it's based on um, um in inference, right? But we have no biological proof of the father. Um, and that idea has been kind of repeated um, ad nauseum for really millennia. I mean, you can find it in Roman law um, and you can find it in, you know, 19th century social theory um, and you can find it even repeated in the 20th century. So this idea that the father is somehow inherently um, uncertain um, is one that kind of wends its way through social theory, through law, um, through literature um, and kind of broad social ideas historically. Um, And I argue a couple of things in the book. One is that the whole idea of paternal uncertainty is really a social construct um, and that there is no real biological truth to that um, notion that paternity can never be known, at least until you have DNA. Um, It seems to me that um, paternal uncertainty, that some fathers are more known than others um, and that um, paternal uh, uncertainty is a kind of um, a social idea. Take the example of um, the children of um, enslaved women who are fa- who, whose fathers are uh, slave masters. This is a classic example 
um, and a particularly vivid one and disturbing one of paternal uncertainty as a kind of um, social ideology. Of course, um, the children of enslaved women have biological fathers, but those fathers are understood to be unknown, unknowable, and we don't actually even want to know who they are, of course, right? Because um, in this particular instance, in this circumstance, paternal uncertainty is really functional to um, the social order and to the, the order of slavery, right? Um, so we can talk about how, you know, pater- the father is always uncertain as a biological idea, but it's really a social idea. And there have historically been certain fathers um, that are m- more uncertain than others. Again, the slave master being one, another example being um, uh, uh, fathers, uh, uh, colonists, right? Fathers who, men who father children among indigenous or native women um, and are considered to be unknown or uncertain. Um, The children of of soldiers um, sent abroad, another example of fathers who and paternity that's often considered to be unknown. So this idea of of paternal uncertainty, um, to me, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do in this book is to take on that idea, Um, because I found that even kind of good feminist social science tends to buy this canard that um, the father is always uncertain, at least until DNA, and the mother is always certain. And it seems to me um, that we really need to uh, challenge the um, the notion that that those those um, statements come out of some kind of biological truth, and to recognize the social um, functionality of um, or function of those um, two constructions of maternity and paternity. Um, so you asked about uh, modern paternity and what modern paternity is. Um, so what I argue in this book is that beginning in the 1920s, um, we see a new idea of paternity emerging in um, what I call the transatlantic world. And I can talk about that later, but um, essentially the scope of this book includes Latin America, um, parts of Europe and the US, an area that I call the transatlantic. Um, And I argue that this new idea of modern paternity emerges in the transatlantic. Um, and modern paternity is a kind of shorthand that I, it's a term that I invented, um, and I'd be happy to talk about the modern part of modern paternity, because um, it's a term that I use um, very uh, consciously. I, um, uh, so the idea of modern paternity is that the father um, is a biologically defined uh, figure that I think is actually relatively new um, in the 19th century um, there's a law tends to understand father or paternity as a social relationship rather than a biological one. So modern paternity is, is, is new in that it, it treats paternity as a biological relationship or a physical relationship. Um, modern paternity also signals the idea that the father um, is not just a biological progenitor, but that he can actually be known. He is knowable. Um, and it's specifically through science and scientific methods that he, he can be known. Again, that's also new from the 19th century, um, when the father is very often considered to be uh, unknown. Um, So there's a whole kind of fetishization in 19th century law in in Latin America, but also um, elsewhere that that considers the the father to be not just unknown, but unknowable. Um, So there are these wonderful and evocative um, phrases of or observations on the part of jurists in the 19th century who say things like um, paternity. Paternity is as mysterious as the source of the Nile, or Mother Nature has veiled paternity in her shroud, and we, you know, we humans can never look behind the veil. Um, so, nineteenth century idea is that paternity can never be known, but modern paternity, in the it began beginning in the early twentieth century, advances the idea um, that the father actually can be known, and that it's through science that we can know him. Um, So there's this kind of spate of um, scientific literature that emerges beginning in the 1920s and 30s about different scientific methods for knowing the father. And some of those methods are really crazy, and I I can talk about them. So modern paternity is this idea of the father as as biological. Science is the way to know him. And finally, the idea that he should be known, right? That um, the father, that it is in the society's best interests that fathers be known, that they be revealed. Again, that's a new idea. It's not obvious in a slave society or in a colonial society that, that all fathers should be known, right? Um, it might be uh, much more functional to the social order that fathers um, be considered uncertain and unknowable. 
Um, so this is, I would argue, um, this idea that the father should always be known, um, even when he's an, uh, an unmarried father, even when he's a priest, even when he's a soldier. Um, this, too, is a new idea. Um, and so that's what I mean by modern paternity, that there's this, this kind of group of ideas, um, a constellation of ideas about paternity that emerge um, beginning in the 1920s. And those ideas emerge out of, for, for various reasons at that moment. Um, and so my book explores both why those ideas come to be, as well as the impact that those ideas have, the kind of the life that modern paternity has um, in the century um, since its um, initial emergence. I mentioned earlier that I use the term modern paternity quite um, deliberately, and, and I want to comment on that briefly um, because I know that talking about modernity um, or the modern is always um, a dangerous place to go for historians. Um, and sometimes when I've pre presented my work um, among different groups um, or different audiences, I get some pushback about you know, you're, you modern historian, you historians of the 20th century, which I actually don't even consider myself to be actually <laughs> having worked in the 19th century. But regardless, you you folks that work on the modern period love to posit this kind of uh, clear and clean break between what you're working on um, and uh, what you observe to be true and some unspecified pre-modern past. So why are you using this term modern paternity? Um, and aren't you you know, asserting um, novelty where there is none. I would argue um, that I think that the ideas that I am, uh, that, I, that I find this particular constellation of ideas, while no one of them is entirely new, it's, you know, it is true that, you know, early modern uh, forensic doctors were, were, some of them at least, were interested in finding a physical proof of paternity. Um, so it's not that every one of these you know, the, uh, the, the dimensions of modern paternity is entirely new and unprecedented. Um, but, but watching how scientists and jurists and the press and publics talk about these, this constellation of ideas um, with particular interest um, at this time, I think is new. Um, and I also use the term modern paternity to signal um, not just what I am saying about their ideas of paternity, but about how the historical actors and actresses themselves understood these ideas they understood their idea of uh, paternity to be distinctly modern. They posited their understanding of paternity as being distinct from, um, radically distinct from notions of paternity of the past. So they love to dwell on how historically it was traditionally in the human past, it was impossible to know the father. But today, um, thanks to um, the work of modern science, we are becoming, you know, we're getting closer and closer to knowing who the father is, to being able to identify the father. So the way modernity is central to the way that the historical actors themselves frame their actions and their understanding. So I use the term modern paternity to signal that idea um, or that framing of the, um, of the issue. So what else? Go ahead. Thank you. Um, so let's let's think about this idea of modern paternity in a particular place. And I wonder if you can talk to us a bit about the role of Brazil or what's going on in Brazil for this early blood testing that happens kind of as this idea of modern paternity is emerging. Yeah, great question. So there are a whole bunch of different crazy technologies that emerge um, beginning in the 1920s. Uh, in an attempt to find paternity on the body, that is to say, to examine the body of the man and his putative child and to try to find somewhere on that body the mark of kinship that will, you know, sort of reveal this relationship um, that has been um, heretofore um, hidden. Um, and so um, scientists uh, try a lot of different techniques for, um, for doing that. And in fact, the way that this project was originally born, no pun intended, um, is when I stumbled on some medical legal treatises from the 1930s um, and 40s by um, uh, Brazilian, but also Venezuelan and Argentine um, uh, um, scientists who proposed different methods of knowing the father. Um, and some of those methods included um, using fingerprinting, um, which was obviously used for individual identity, but fingerprinting has a hereditary element. And so there was an attempt on the part in particular of Argentine 
scientists to use fingerprinting as a, as a paternity test. Um, there was an attempt to use uh, dental records. There was a, a famous um, Brazilian uh, dentist in the um, 1940s who uh, became well known in Sao Paulo for his his dental tests. Um, there were, uh, you know, anthropometric um, kinds of um, analyses of resemblance, etc. Um, but one of, and indeed perhaps. The most common um, technique was um, hereditary blood group testing. So we know that um, the blood groups, the ABO blood groups, are um, inherited, right, Um, are passed on um, according to Mendelian laws from parent to child. Um, And so there was the discovery that that, um, ABO blood groups were indeed followed these, these hereditary uh, rules um, and that that discovery was made in the 1910s. Uh, by about 1920 or so, um, scientists are increasingly clear that there are these four blood types um, that they are universal that they follow these universal laws and that therefore you can predict if you know, for example, the blood type of a child and its mother, you can you you can predict uh, what the blood type of the father had to be. Um, so in the 1920s, um, scientists around the world become increasingly interested in using this technique um, in order to, uh, as a kind of paternity test, a, a very rudimentary paternity test. Of course, um, ABO blood typing can't tell you or positively identify who the father of a given child is. What it can do is exclude certain impossible fathers, right? So if you know the, the blood type of the mother and the child, you know by definition, uh, depending on what those blood types are, that the father um, must belong to certain blood groups and can't belong to others. So one can imagine certain scenarios where that might be a helpful piece of information. Um, so one of the, the the arguments that I make is that even as scientists are very excited about um, early um, blood testing, they actually use these um, uh, tests, this, this new technology, this new technique, in radically different ways in different parts of the world. So in Germany, for example, we see people using um, blood groups um, in child support cases. Um, child support cases are quite common in Germany. Germany has, um, at least for by European standards, pretty high legitimacy rates. There are lots of children born um, out of marriage, again, relative to the rest of Europe in the 1920s. And so um, Germany and then Austria uh, become very interested in using these blood uh, group, this blood group technique in the court to test the veracity of um, women's paternity claims. Um, but what I find in Brazil is a radically different use of these um, these blood uh, tests. And in fact, Brazil is, as far as I can tell, the first country in the, not just in Latin America but in the Western Hemisphere to develop to to adopt blood group tests in a legal setting. Um, and so I find very early on, uh, 1926, 1927, um, just, just a very short time after the blood, uh, these tests are, are adopt, adopted in Germany and Austria, they are uh, put into use in Brazil. Um, and in particular, in particular, they begin in a forensic institute, the um, Instituto Oscar Freire in Sao Paulo, which is affiliated with the University of, of Sao Paulo and is still in existence today. Um, it's a forensic science institute, one of you know many centers of forensic science in Latin America, um, and it, the local court in São Paulo, a, lo- a local judge, asks the good um, medico legistas, the forensic scientist of the Oscar Freire, um, to perform a blood test um, in a uh, case in 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 the court. Um, interestingly, though, that's the case is not a paternity case per se. It's not a child support case as, um, as in Germany or Austria. It's actually a rape case. Um, and this it ends up being a very common use of blood group tests in Brazil in this period. Um, and then moving into the 1930s, that blood group testing is used in uh, the case of sexual crimes, um, specifically rape or the, uh, the crime known as defloramento, um, deflowering, right? The, the, seduction, um, if you will, or deflowering of a virgin, which is a a specific uh, sexual crime. And so the idea is to use, again, the blood group test to assess the veracity of a woman's claim. Um, In the the very first case that's used um, in uh, Sao Paulo, the very first 
use of the blood group uh, test, um, it's an awful case actually of a very young um, girl who's I think 11 or 12 years old who works as a maid in a household. And she gives birth to a baby um, and identifies as the father, her um, pathetic, her, her master, um, who ironically turns out to be a teacher of biology. But that's one of those many ironies one um, comes across in, in the historical record. So she accuses this man of being the father of her baby. And he is then, uh, it, she takes him to court um, uh, for this crime of seduction of a, um, uh, or of de flora bianco. Um, and of course, the only thing that a blood group test can show is that a man is not the father of a given child. It can never identify that man, um, you know, causatively identify, identify him as the father. Um, in this particular case, the, um, uh, the test is inconclusive. Um, it shows that the man is of a blood group that could be compatible with this woman and her child. Um, so at the end of the day, it's um, kind of a useless piece of information other than to show that he biologically could be um, the father, but not that he is the father. Of course, if the case, if the test had had a different result and had shown that he couldn't, he was incompatible and could not be the father of the child, um, that would have been presumably taken as evidence that the woman, the young woman, really girl in this case, uh, was, you know, mendacious, that she was telling a lie and that she had falsely accused a man of being um, the father of her child. Um, of course, the logic is, I mean, there's a particular logic working um, there. Presumably, this man could be guilty of rape, even if he were not the father of her child. Perhaps she had, you know, another partner who fathered this child, but this, this the guy who was being uh, accused is, is nevertheless guilty. Um, but of course, in the kind of logic of sexual morality, um, a young woman who had presumably had sex with more than one man um, could not be taken as um, as uh, trustworthy, and therefore the blood group test um, would have shown, if not the paternity of the father, it would have shown the perjury of the mother. Um, so the blood group would have been interpreted, and indeed was in other cases, interpreted to give information um, about the mother, if not about the father. Um, and specifically about the mother's, uh, you know, mendacity. Um, so that was a kind of typical use in the, the Instituto Oscar Freire was to use the blood group test um, in cases of uh, sexual crimes. That wasn't the only use, um, but that was one common use. And so, you know, the point is really how this technique, which is presumably universally known or, or, or it, it has a universal logic, right? The, the tests that Brazilians are carrying out using their, you know, vials and petri dishes um, is this exact same one that the Germans are, are carrying out and that um, people in the U.S. Are, are carrying out. But the same technique is used for radically different purposes. Um, so it's put to different use. And so that's, that's really one of the themes of the book is how um, certain technologies travel, um, how the blood tests, the blood group tests traveled. Um, around the across the transatlantic, and as it traveled, it was called on to to um, uh, solve different problems, to address different social issues. Um, you know, and again, in Germany, it was about um, child support cases, and in Brazil, um, it was about this this idea of um, defloramento um, or the, the problem of seduction. Um, and so that's again, one of the themes of the book is the, the fundamentally kind of social nature of uh, these scientific technologies. So kind of taking this, um, uh, these ideas to look at another case, could you tell us the story of Roque Arcardini and why it's important that that story is set in Buenos Aires? Sure. So the book in general is organized around a series of stories. Um, and that was one that was both a narrative um, choice on my part and also, a, I mean, to, to, to make the history that I was telling interesting, but it was also a kind of um, a, a, a choice insofar as I had such a hard time figuring out how to organize a story that moved across place and across time and across theme. And so ultimately the way that I did that was by focusing on each chapter on 
uh, a particular story or anecdote and then unpacking that anecdote to, to ask what the anecdote tells us, not just about paternity in that time and place, um, but also perhaps more broadly or comparatively um, what the anecdote uh, tells us about um, other times and places as well, how it sort of um, reveals certain themes or patterns um, um, that characterize the history of paternity across the 20th century. So the anecdote that you refer to is a famous case, um, a paternity uh, suit in uh, uh, that happens in Buenos Aires, in kind of Belle Epoque at Buenos Aires in the first two decades of the century. Um, and it involves a wealthy man um, by the name of Roque Arcandini, uh, a man of an Italian uh, immigrant background uh, who becomes very wealthy. They, his family, you know, immigrates as penniless um, Piemontese um, artisans, and then he becomes this uh, big landowner, very wealthy landowner. Um, and at the time of his death um, in Buenos Aires around uh, 1917 or so, um, Roque is living in sin, as it were, uh, with a woman who has been his partner for uh, a number of years. And the couple have three children uh, together. Um, and as soon as Roque dies, um, the his his mother and his sisters, um, who you know uh, are still alive, um, file suit to protect the inheritance, to, to protect his um, his uh, property um, from any claims on the part of these three children, um, and so there ensues a very long and complicated. Um, paternity suit, in essence, or really a series of legal suits um, about the fate of this inheritance. Um, Roque Arcardini's family claims, his, his mother and his sisters claim, um, that these three children do not actually belong to Roque Arcardini, and that his partner, Celestina, has created this incredible ruse in which she faked pregnancy, and this is actually a crime in uh in criminal codes at this time, supposición de parto, um, that she has falsified the pregnancy and the births of these three children, so much for maternity being certain, um, and has produced these three children um, in an attempt to, uh, you know, win Roque's love and presumably have access to his money as well. Um, Celestina, the woman, long part, longtime partner of Roque, um, perhaps not surprisingly, responds that this is a, a ridiculous um, contention that, of course, these three children belong to both her and uh, Roque, um, and that they are therefore um, entitled to uh, receive uh, half of his inheritance as his natural uh, children. So one of the interesting, this kind of inheritance suit, um, I mean, I don't know that we have, we don't, or I know we don't have statistics about how many paternity suits there are um, in Buenos Aires at this time, but I, uh, but certainly contemporaries at the time worried that paternity suits were very common. They worried that um, wealthy men's um, property was being constantly assaulted as soon as they died. Um, children would appear, um, um, supposed putative children would appear um, requesting their inheritance. Um, and so I argue that this concern about, um, about these, you know, grasping, uh, you know, illegitimate children that appear out of the woodwork or appear as mushrooms in the words of one um, contemporary, um, that this, this preoccupation with these children um, and with the threat that they pose to wealthy men's property is really um, a function of a moment um, in Argentina of great wealth, but also increasingly limited um, social mobility. Um, it's a moment when um, Argentine society is changing radically, cities are growing, um, and kind of the social fabric is changing, um, and social relations are becoming increasingly um, anonymous. Um, and so um, Roque Arcardini's family, his mother and sisters, hire um, a local anthropologist, um, and they ask him to examine um, the three children and, and attempt to determine whether they are in fact the children, the biological children of Roque Arcadini. Um, and so the chapter, my chapter revolves around this inheritance dispute, um, as well as this um, new figure of the scientist, the anthropolog physical anthropologist, who is invited in to uh, assess this claim of paternity. Um, again, in the past, 
paternity was understood as um, uh, a social relationship. So the way to know whether Roque Arcardini was the father of these children was to look at his behavior. Did he act like the father? Did he think he was the father? Did he, how did he act like he was the father? What, what were his behaviors um, during his lifetime um, that indicated um, his understanding of, his consciousness of, of, and his acceptance of his paternity of these three children? And so there's a voluminous um, um, judicial record in which Celestina and her lawyers try to show precisely that, that Roque had, you know, he acted like a, a father. They produced letters that he would write about the children, these solicitous paternal letters that he would write about the children and their health and are they doing okay and are they eating okay um, uh, to Celestina as, as um, um, evidence of his, um, of his paternity. Um, but introducing the scientist into the picture suggests a very different understanding of paternity. Uh, an understanding of paternity is biological, right? It doesn't matter what Roque Arcardini thought. It doesn't matter how he acted. What matters is whether he was the biological progenitor of these children. That's the conceit of introducing a scientist into the case, um, into the judicial investigation uh, to determine whether or not that he's the father. And that's a new idea. That's an idea that really departs from um, Argentine and, and Latin American law um, uh, historically, which again, treated the father as, as a social figure rather than a biological one. Um, so um, the kind of contention of the scientist is that where once upon a time in you know kind of small scale provincial Argentine society, everyone would have known who was related to whom. In a little village, you know, that kind of social knowledge circulated widely. It would have been obvious who the father of a given illegitimate child was. But in the big city, in, in you know, a city that is growing by leaps and bounds, such as Buenos Aires did at the end of the 19th century, in the first decades of the 20th century, um, in a society increasingly, uh, that's increasingly heterogeneous, right, that incorporates many uh, in, in, immigrants, um, the problem of anonymity arises. And so for the scientist who's called in to perform this, um, this examination of the children and of Acardini, um, that's really what's at stake. Um, the, the old laws about the social performance of paternity worked in a small-scale society of villages, but they don't work in the big, modern, anonymous city. Um, and now we need some other kind of proof to um, establish relatedness between people. And so that new method of proof is going to be a scientific one, according to this, um, in, according to the scientist. So, um, spoiler alert, how does the case end? Um, I don't know if I should say, um, cause then you won't want to read it. Um, but in essence, the, so I guess I won't tell you, um, but the, the, the scientist determines, I'll say this, um, that the three children are not related, um, to, uh, Roquea Cardini, um, and that the, you know, that Celestina has presumably indeed created this suppositious, these suppositious births and, um, you know, foisted these fake children onto the Arcardini family. This is the, the conclusion of the scientist. Um, I guess I'll say that you have to read the chapter to find out what the court says. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the scientist's verdict. Um, and then I, again, won't reveal uh, how the court ultimately resolves this case. But what the case really reveals are these competing ideas of older social ideas of paternity with newer biological and scientific ones. And the particular, it's kind of, I argue, no, um, it is not coincidental that this tension becomes particularly manifest in a city like Buenos Aires that is, again, growing and changing so rapidly. Um, there's this kind of sense that um, the modern city, modern society requires modern methods for discerning um, relatedness and discerning kinship. Well, thank you for that uh, tantalizing uh piece of the very exciting story. So you'll have to read to find out more. Um, I'd like to go back to the Instituto Oscar Freire. And I wonder if you could tell us um, a little bit more about the type of investigations that this institute conducted um, in a slightly later period, and also something about the sources that this institution produced and how you use them. Um, there are some very interesting visuals in that chapter, which we won't be able to see on the podcast, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about them. Sure. So I, in doing my investigation, I think it's always kind of interesting to hear how people conduct their um, 
their research and find their sources. Um, in the course of reading um, published primary sources by paternity testers in Brazil and elsewhere in Latin America in the 1930s um, and 40s and 50s, um, I came across repeated references to this Instituto Oscar Freire and realized that it was kind of a center of producing knowledge about paternity um, and modern paternity in Brazil um, in this period. And so I looked online and discovered, yeah, Instituto Oscar Freire still exists. I found some tantalizing references in, again, published material from the time that suggested that the um, Instituto, as it, as it produced its kind of its expert reports in the cases that it took on for the court. So this instituto, as a, as a kind of forensic science um, institute, performed myriad different medical legal investigations, um, paternity tests, of course, um, but also you know, autopsies, um, uh, pregnancy examinations, uh, examinations of injuries and wounds in, um, in criminal cases, as well as in um, uh, work comp- workers' compensation cases. Um, so they produced thousands um, and thousands of expert reports on these diff- on different cases. And I had an inkling from reading um, the material produced in this time that they would take these expert reports and bind them into um, you know into kind of uh, books. Um, so I was in São Paulo uh, for for an, for something else and decided to seek out the Instituto Oscar Freire. Um, and I, I met with, uh, I wrote in advance and met with a librarian of the University of Sao Paulo, um, as well as a geneticist who works at the Instituto Oscar Freire, which is again, still a functioning medical legal, um, research, um, and, uh, uh institute, uh, to this day. Um, and when I got there, they said, oh yeah, we have some old, um, you know, books in the bookshelves of our, um, of our uh, upstairs in the hallway of our institute. Um, go have a look. So I pull out some of these books, and sure enough, they are exactly what I was looking for, which is to say the bound copies of the expert reports that were produced by the Instituto. And so if somebody's looking for a dissertation topic out there, um, they're a phenomenal source. Um, Tons of worker compensation uh, cases, as I mentioned before, in which workers come to the Institute, um, you know, workers from these the burgeoning industry of, of Sao Paulo and they show up with all kinds of awful um, workplace accidents being maimed limbs, et cetera. Um, and they're examined by the, the Instituto's doctors. Um, and among those many, many uh, expert reports, I found uh, uh, the cases of uh, paternity um, suits. Um, and so as it turned out, the, the, the Instituto began with the, the, blood, the simple blood group test that I mentioned from the 1920s. But as time went on, their paternity investigations became increasingly elaborate. So when they were called by the court to establish um, or investigate the paternity of a given man, again, in the, in the context of a defloramiento seduction suit, or sometimes in the case of a child support suit, or maybe an inheritance suit, um, they brought the mother, the child, and the putative father into the into the institute, and then performed on them a quite elaborate um, I- examination in an attempt to establish kinship between uh, the man and the child. And so this consisted, again, of the blood group test, but it also consisted of an analysis of the threesome's fingerprints. Um, it, it consisted of um, anthropometric analysis, um, examining, you know, the the um, head shape and uh, size and body type of the uh, of the threesome, the mother, child, and putative father, um, and so often these investigations or the, these reports um, are quite long and elaborate. Um, in addition to describing in, as a text and in you know the measurements of their investigations, the instituto also took uh, voluminous photographs of its subjects. Um, and so the paternity investigations include these quite extraordinary kind of family portraits, if you will, of mother, child, and putative father. Um, and they are photographs that are taken following, following the conventions of um, Bertillonage, um, Bertillons, the famous 19th century French anthropometrists, um, 
you know, inventor of the mugshot. Um, they're, they're, the photographs follow the conventions of a mugshot. So you have these photographs of, um, of mother, father, and child um, taken looking directly at the camera and then in profile. Again, very evocative of the modern mugshot. Um, and yet they're also family portraits in a sense, or portraits that ask us to or invite the viewer to ask whether there is a family connection, right? Um, a kinship connection between these three individuals. So they're very evocative um, to me, visuals. Um, and actually when I was describing them to a friend of mine who is um, uh, also a Latin American historian, she said, um, you know, to, to the way that you're describing them, they actually sound a lot like the pinturas de castas um, from colonial Mexico, right? These, these visuals of representations of a family. Um, so of course, the, you know, the mugshot, this is a, this is a modern, uh, right, a visual convention, but there is a way that they, they really do, um, um, evoke on some level the pinturas de castas, um, the, the casta, casta paintings, um, which of course portray families in distress often, right? They're very, very often families in conflict. Um, that's clearly the case, um, in these, um, Oscar Ferreri photographs as well. Um, and there's, you know, a questioning of the biological relationships between them. In the, in the case of the pinturas de castas, of course, there's a whole racial narrative about, um, you know, racial intermixture um, of, of a child produced of a, of a biracial um, partnership. Um, that is actually often the case with the, um, with the Oscar Freire um, photographs as well. Um, the, you know, mostly working class subjects of these photographs and subjects that really of these paternity investigations come from the multi-ethnic, um, you know, plebe of Sao Paulo. And so they too um, uh, invite questions about the, the you know, the racial um, char uh, character of, of mother, father, and child. And that's something about which the um, forensic scientists themselves often um, comment. Um, and so these are again, one of the, one of the sources that I was able to use. Um, but essentially what I, what I argue is that the, um, the Oscar Freire doctors come up with this kind of novel, um, method for discerning paternity on the body, right? This very eclectic and novel, um, set of, um, methods relying on blood group testing, fingerprinting, anthropometry, et cetera. Um, but I argue that by and large, um, they're really recycling 19th century methods of um, that are used from uh, race science to identification science. So at the end of the day, while they're, they're, they're kind of using old parts to put together something new, um, they're drawing on again, photography, which is not, you know, not new fingerprinting, which is not by this time in the 1930s new um, anthropometry, again, a 19th century scientific method, um, so they're, they're kind of recycling and repurposing these 19th century methods for a new 20th century purpose, which is now not, not to know race per se, or to know, um, individual identity, identity, right. That's not the purpose here. It's to know paternity, to know kinship. Um, so old methods, new purpose. So the last chapters of your book, um, are mainly set in the United States and in Europe. Um, and they're they're fascinating, and I hope you'll tell us something about them. Um, I wanted to particularly ask if you could share with us how your training and background as a Latin Americanist shaped the way that you did the research and wrote those chapters. Yeah, so I mean, my as I mentioned earlier, this book really began when I stumbled on these medical legal treatises from the 1930s and 40s. Um, because I was working on the Latin America project, I the medical legal treatises themselves came out of um, were produced in Latin America. Um, you know, Brazilians writing about teeth and Argentines writing about blood groups and uh, etc. Um, and so I started off with a question like, "Whoa, wh why are Latin Americans so um, interested in?" Uh, and this is clearly, again, Latin Americans, as in people from different parts of the hemisphere producing this scientific knowledge. And my, so my initial question was, why, why is that? Why are they so obsessed with paternity and then fixing biological paternity in the 1930s? Um, but as I continued to do research, it, it became very clear to me that, that this was not just a Latin American phenomenon. Um, so this wasn't a story about Latin American exceptionalism or, or a particularly Latin American fixation on paternity. 
um, this was in fact a transatlantic phenomenon that people in Germany and the US and Italy were also really fixated on this question of the biological father and how to know him at this time. And so that changed the project radically. I realized that um, I didn't want to just focus on Latin America. Um, I wanted to fold it into a broader transatlantic story. Um, And that involved both unprecedented challenges for me um, as someone who does not write about, you know, Italian or German history um, to, you know, kind of um, write chapters on those countries uh, without being a, you know, quote unquote expert on them. Um, But I I would insist that in kind of adopting this transatlantic framework, my purpose is not to dilute Latin America. It's actually to insert Latin America into a transatlantic story and to insist on the centrality or significance of what's going on in Latin America, scientifically, legally, socially at this time. Um, And so while I don't, you know, the book is really geared towards a, you know, a broad audience. So I don't spend a lot of time in the book. Um, Maybe I'll write an article, um, a a separate article about this, but I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, um, this, this, this choice, well, actually I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. I had, what I didn't do is write about it in the book. Um, but you know, one of the things the book is really trying to insist on without saying it outright is that you can't think about this topic paternity, but, but by extension, probably lots of other topics in this period without thinking about Latin America's relationship to Europe and the U S. Um, so I find, for example, that, um, Latin America is very much part of, and this is not just me finding this, other people have said this, but, but it's very clear in, in relation to this particular topic, that, that Latin America is very much part of a transatlantic conversation about science, about forensic science, about identification science, about race science in this period, this period being about 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, and while it's true that the conversation, that kind of transatlantic conversation is, is not equal, Um, While it's true that Latin Americans spend a lot more time reading Europeans than Europeans spend reading Latin Americans, nevertheless, there is absolutely a flow of information, of ideas, of techniques, like those blood group tests that go from Germany um, to Latin America. There's also a flow, frankly, of people, um, of Jewish emigres who are fleeing Europe in the 1930s, many of the kind of leading scientists of paternity in the in, in Europe were Jews. Um, and so they, they leave, some of them go to the U S um, particularly famous, um, Italian, uh, serologist, um, goes to Argentina. So there's this kind of flow of, um, ideas and people and techniques, um, um, in terms of, in terms of a kind of a transatlantic scientific community. So part of what I'm trying to establish is that Latin America is very much part of that transatlantic scientific community. Um, I also argue that it makes sense to think about Latin America in relation to uh, Europe and the United States, as well as the, the reverse um, for uh, uh, legal reasons that um, these parts of the world share a common legal history and a common um, history of family law that helps to explain why it is that paternity becomes um, an obsession, a fixation um, in this period. Um, And finally, I argue that this part of the world shares a kind of common understanding of kinship. And that's in some ways the most controversial I think claim of the, of, of the three that I'm making that there's a common scientific community, a common legal um, tradition, and I'm also arguing that there's a kind of common understanding of kinship. I think that's a controversial statement as somebody who studies history of family because um, there's such diversity among you know these different parts of the world and nationally and subnationally and you know in terms of class um, uh, practices of family, etc. So to try and characterize this this um, part of the world as transatlantic as sharing a common family culture is is um, is I think a little bit. Uh, I don't know, it leaves me open to criticism, let's put it that way. But I think that nevertheless, there is something to be said about common, if not common family practices, um, common norms that, you know, what Latin American elites considered or, or, you know, states considered to be proper families. It looks quite similar to what people understand proper families to be um, in other parts of the transatlantic. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of common understanding about what families should be 
what they are, even if they had that, you know, those norms are not necessarily always achieved um, in, in these different parts of the world. Um, so again, I'm trying to bring Latin America into, um, into this transatlantic frame um, and where a lot of, I would say that a lot of my earlier work has insisted on the, ex, um, the specifically Latin American nature of Latin American family. In some ways in this book, I'm flipping that uh, calculus on its head and suggesting actually here's what Latin America shares in common with. Um, the, the rest of the transatlantic, um, as opposed to what distinguishes it as different. Um, so I think that's a that's a running tension in the book about difference versus similarity, convergence versus divergence. Um, and I find that there, you know, we start off with these common ideas of law, um, common scientific practices, common notions of what a family is supposed to be. Um, but then I also go on to show how it's also a story of divergence about how um, paternity science looks really different and is used for the very different purposes in German child support cases versus Brazilian seduction cases. So ultimately maybe the weight then shifts back to um, a story about divergence and difference and local specificity as opposed to some common transatlantic story, but there's, I think a tension there. Um, And so my purpose, you know, is, is to kind of show what it looks like to write about convergence and divergence, similarity, as well as difference. Um, and to do so, again, with a transatlantic frame that puts Latin America firmly uh, in the conversation where I think, you know, European historians, North American historians do comparative work on the U.S. and Western Europe, um, but they almost never look at, at, at Latin America, of course. And so I felt very um, strongly about insisting as a Latin American as the Latin America also be at the table, because it really was um, in the history, when you look at the history. Um, Latin American scientists, Latin American jurists, Latin American, the Latin American press, Latin American publics were very interested in these questions. Um, and um, so I wanted them to be central to my history. I think that uh, Latin Americanists and those who study other regions will certainly find um, a lot to think about um, with this book. So I wanted to, um, you know, as sort of a last question uh, for you, so we don't take up too much of your time. Um, This book is really about predecessors or forerunners to our contemporary uh, DNA paternity tests, um, although you do talk about them at the very end of the book. So I wondered if you could say something about the insights that this history could give us to help us understand, um, for example, the use of DNA tests to ascertain kinship among migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border today? Yeah, so um, this book is in many ways a prehistory that helps or tries to explain uh, what happens um, after the 1980s when DNA fingerprinting for the first time can establish the father with a 99.99% certainty. So in many ways, my history is about a history of failed methods, partial methods, um, imperfect methods, um, most with, with a few um, quite extraordinary um, exceptions of, of, of shining hubris, most scientists recognize that while they're getting closer to understanding who the father is, they don't really ever get there. They never find the holy grail um, the, you know, the key that unlocks the secret of kinship, um, for most of the 20th century. So the, the, I really focus on the, um, you know, sort of the beginning of the story in the 1910s, 1920s, um, moving into the 1950s, because that's really when I see the kind of heyday of modern paternity, these ideas being established and worked out. Um, so during that period, nobody finds the Holy Grail that can find, you know, the bio- identify the biological father. That really only happens in the 1980s with DNA fingerprinting. Um, so in the epilogue, I take up, you know, that, that history of DNA and what happens and how the, you know, the, the preceding, you know, century of history that I tell, um, or maybe not entire century, but half century um, that I narrate, how, how it, you know, um, gives us insight into the DNA present. Um, and, um, so I, you know, I talk about that in the, really in the epilogue of the book. Um, one of the, 
uses of DNA that um, I think is important that, and then I, you know, the kind of historical antecedents I discuss um, in the, in the book um, has to do with the application of genetic technologies and kinship technologies, as I call them um, in immigration and citizenship um, settings. So of course the obvious place to want to use genetic science to establish the father is in a child support case or an inheritance case, or perhaps even a, you know, deflowering cases in Brazil, right? In the context, broadly speaking, of family law, of sexual crimes, et cetera. Um, but immigration and citizenship law also rely on family and family relations and particular ideas about family. And so um, genetic science has long been of interest to immigration authorities. Um, and the reason that family, I should say, is of interest to immigration authorities is because um, uh, families is, is a central category of immigration law, right? Um, family reunification is a central conceit of family law in a lot of different places in the U.S., but also in, in other places. So that, say, you know, uh, refugees can ask to be reunited with their family members um, who are resident in the United States. Um, so there is a scenario in which uh, you would want to be able to, immigration authorities would want to be able to establish um, whether the kinship claim is indeed, um, uh, you know, can be established or not. So it's really beginning in the 1950s that immigration authorities in the U.S. Um, start using, again, pretty rudimentary blood group tests to um, test um, claims of um, would-be migrants seeking to reunite with their relatives in the U.S. Um, so fast forward to the present and to your question about um, the DNA present, um, we see, in fact, DNA becoming increasingly, um, it, its use expanding um, in immigration and citizenship settings um, in, the, in the present day um, to test family claims. And the kind of the most recent and I would argue egregious um, example of that is happening at the border, the U.S.-Mexico border um, today. Um, literally within the past month, um, the Department of Homeland Security has announced a pilot program to use um, a special machine that can test the DNA um, and establish a kinship claim within just a few hours, 90 minutes. Um, uh, so, uh, so they have these new machines that um, can test DNA very quickly. They're portable machines. They can be brought right to, say, uh, you know, Customs and Border Protection um, uh, you know, station, right? You don't have to send a cheek swab off to a lab and wait for weeks to get the result. You can do it right there on the spot. Um, and so this rapid DNA pilot program is being applied specifically to Central American migrants. As we know, there's been a large influx of families and family units um, uh, from Central America in, you know, recent years, um, and especially in the last um, couple of months. Um, and one of the claims, of course, of the Trump administration is that these are fake families, that people are, you know, trafficking children across the border uh, because they uh, are unlikely to be detained um, if they come with um, children in tow. Um, and so the purpose of this rapid DNA pilot program is to test families um, and establish whether um, family units coming across the border are in fact um, really families or whether they're just, you know, adults with, um, who have, who have, you know, um, strategically borrowed someone else's children to make it across the border. Um, and so I have thought about that um, scenario and um, what the history of the use of genetic technologies tells us. Um, I would argue, and this is of course, is what historians always say, this use is not new, um, that immigration officials in the U.S. at least um, have been doing this for, um, for the better part of a century, using um, genetic technologies to test families and migrant families. Um, and I also argue um, that these, this use is really um, kind of pernicious. What in essence it does is establish um, a a kind of um, dichotomous um, understanding of family in which um, um, for migrants, the only families that count are biological families and biological ties. Whereas, you know, for citizen families, we can accept that, you know, kinship is social, that, you know, adoptive children um, are, you know, no less children than biological children, et cetera. Um, but what, you know, testing DNA at the border does is um, impose a, you know, biological definition of a strict biological definition of kinship 
on um, families. Um, the only family, quote unquote, that counts is the family between a biological parent, progenitor, and its child. Um, any other permutation or combination, an adopted child, a foster child, a niece, a nephew, um, uh, would not count, right? And so I am certain that the U.S. administration is going to come up with a, a few uh, choice examples of negative results from the rapid DNA test, and then it's going to go and make you know go to the press and say, "You see, um, we told you these were fake families," and they'll probably have you know a sample of you know two cases out of thousands, but that that will get lost in the hullabaloo, and they will make a claim um, that you know about fake families at the border on the basis of this DNA um, uh, information. Um, but again, I would argue that that use of DNA or, you know, biological testing really um, undermines uh, social definitions of family, um, other kinds of parent-child relations, um, such as adoptive, you know, or foster children, um, et cetera. Uh, So I find this really pernicious. Um, And indeed, the history of um, genetic tests in to establish kinship in immigration settings um, is really a, a quite pernicious history. It's really a history that's um, not interested in relatedness so much as exclusion, perhaps not surprisingly. Um, so that's the kind of, I guess, the the the, the tail end, the postscript to my book. Um, and you know, I, I will not be surprised to see new, uh, additional new um, uses of DNA to establish, um, you know, relatedness or family in different, um, in different settings. But this is where the border is, I think, really the next um, kind of frontier, problematically, um, for the uses of these technologies. Nara, thank you so much for telling us about this very timely work. Um, again, we've been speaking with Nara Milanich, who's professor of history at Barnard College, about her book, Paternity, The Elusive Quest for the Father. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you.